Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. We are in the outward journey. We've spent the whole year talking about spiritual growth, and we've, we've focused it around three different journeys. The first one, who remembers what the first one was? Inward. Thank you very much. MC, it's like cheating. It's like the kid in front of the class, you know, that always knows the answer. It was the inward journey. That's right. Yes, Bill Menzer. We're talking about who we are and who we aren't in Christ. So it was identity focused, right? Maturing in relation to ourselves. Then we talked about the upward journey and the catchphrase for that was beholding and becoming. It was all about who God is, getting to know God and allowing God to rub off on us as we spend time with him. And now we're in the outward journey. And this is all about how to maturely relate to the world around us. How do we relate to the world around us? And we have a catchphrase which beautifully sums up this journey as well, and that is this. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus now sends us. Well, that's brilliant. How did we come up with that? Well, it's actually in the Bible, which is a good place to build a sermon series off. In John 20, Jesus has been crucified. His disciples saw it. They're horrified. They're alone. They're frightened. Little do they know, Jesus has conquered death and come back from the dead. And showing his personality, perhaps, this is how Jesus chooses to reveal that to the disciples. John 20, 19 to 22. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. So he just shows up in the room. I know he enjoyed that. I know he had to have. He was fully man and fully God. He got a kick out of this. He stands among them and says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends us. But he sends us into a world. He sends us someplace. He doesn't just send us into a void. He sends us into a context, right? We make sense of the world around us based on where we think we are and what we think is going to happen. We have expectations based on the setting. And that's why I want to talk today about the setting of the story. We've met some characters. We've studied God and we've studied ourselves. Now let's talk about where this is all going to play out. So another way of saying this is, What's the state of the world? What's the context that we're thrown into? And to illustrate why this matters, I've come up with a story that Leonard Duke tells me is pretty good, so I should stop saying it's corny. So I'm just going to, I won't say that. See how I kind of said it but didn't say it? All right, here we go. I'm calling it a hard day at work. Here's the story. A psychiatrist is about to close down for the day. He's had a long day, and all of a sudden, there's a frantic pounding at his door. He opens the door, and there stands a man who is visibly distraught. His face is wet from tears, and soon he realizes he's not just sore and red and puffy from crying. He actually has bruises, new and old, on his face. He's been assaulted. This is a man who's been abused, and the man is very upset. He says, I need to talk to someone. I need to talk to you. Can I talk to you? And the psychiatrist is trying to get back in work mode, and he says, yeah, you can... Please, sir, come on in. You can talk to me. The guy comes in the office, plops down on the couch, starts crying. He's visibly shaken. And you're, you're trying to get into psychologist mode. And you're like, well, what seems to be the problem? And he says, they won't leave me alone. Who won't leave you alone, sir? My coworkers. 
I don't know why they won't leave me alone. I, I do a really good job. I'm great with people. I type really fast. I, I'm, I'm, I answer phones and, and deal with customers really, really good, and they just won't stop. And you're like, well, what, 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 what won't they stop doing? They hit me. They hit you? Yeah, all my coworkers hit me. And you're thinking, this is crazy. Is, this, is there a bully? And so you ask him, is it just one coworker? Is it somebody you don't get along with? He says, no, it could be anybody. I never know who it's going to be. Someday somebody hits me. They, they all attack me. And I'm like, you, psychiatrist says, you need to talk to your boss. You need to tell your boss and you need to address this. And then he just really breaks down and starts crying. And he says, my boss likes it. Like, what do you mean your boss likes it? He says, well, when one of my coworkers doesn't want to attack me, my boss picks one and makes them attack me. That's, that's almost unbelievable. I don't believe it. And the guy says, the worst part is, when I get hurt, my boss yells at me. And he's happy with the person that hurt me. Now, if this guy is a secretary, we have a huge problem. And the problem is, everybody in that office needs to go to jail. <laughs> we need to call the police and cart them all away. Boss, coworkers, everybody, clear the place out. They are now hiring. Huge problem. But if that guy only thinks he's a secretary, and he's actually a professional boxer, the problem is he's delusional, and he's come to the right place. See how context matters? In one setting, every coworker is a psychopath. In the other setting, he's crazy. What do you expect? This is what you're training for. So it matters. Context matters an awful lot. And uh, I'd like to pose the question in this message just at the beginning, something to think about. Are we secretaries or are we more like boxers in this Christian life? All right, moving on to a video game. Ha! We're all saved this morning from the almost two-minute intro to the 1991 Sega Genesis release, Streets of Rage, because my video didn't want to play. So we have a still frame, and I have to describe it to you, which I hope will be almost as good. Why are you talking about a video game, Anthony? That seems like quite an abrupt segue. Well, it is, but it relates. Here's the thing. Back in the day, video games were just not that complex. They were two-dimensional, and they scrolled from side to side. Now, in this game, you choose one of those three characters on the screen, and it's really complicated. Here's what you do. You can punch, and you can kick. Randomly colored bad guys, some bigger than others, some smaller than others, four hours. That was the whole game. Now, why would anyone do that? Why did we love that at 10 years old? Why would we sit there for a whole Saturday afternoon and do the same redundant thing over and over again? And the answer is context. There's a short little blurb at the beginning of the game, just a little intro. It would have taken less than a minute to scroll through that says, you're not just three people, you're ex-cops. And you had to leave the police force because the corrupt syndicate leader, Mr. X, has infected the once peaceful city and you and your two friends are going to take it back. Man, so like hour three, you're like, okay, why, why are we doing this? We've got to stop Mr. X, man. We've got to bring down the syndicate. Like, oh, okay. So that little bit of context, just that little blurb at the beginning of the game framed your experience and made it fun instead of redundant. So let's talk about the context of the Christian life. And here's going to be our blurb. I, I apologize, St. Paul, for calling this a blurb, <laughs> especially because it's really good. But this is our context blurb, okay? This is our intro. This comes from Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. Anthony, I see you cut out 3B. Why did you do that? For a very holy and spiritual reason. I wanted it to fit on one slide. So we apologize, Ephesians 3B. You're really good. We love you anyway. But here we go. 
You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. This is our intro, and we're going to build the rest of the message off of this. You guys ready to go? All right. Point one that we need to know about this world, the setting of the story that we've been thrown into, is that it's hostile and dead. Did you guys see how many times St. Paul said dead in that passage? You were dead in your sins. We were dead until Christ gave us life. Dead, 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 dead. We need to keep dead in mind for the next few slides. So I have a reminder here from Plants vs. Zombies. This is our dead guy, you know, and nobody has a watermelon, so we're really in trouble. We're going to throw him to the side, and we're going to talk about this Greek word for dead. Dead is the Greek word nekros. And the Blue Letter Bible app that I love so much outlines its biblical usage this way. This word is used to de describe someone that has breathed his last, who is lifeless, deceased, departed, one whose soul is in heaven or hell, destitute of life, without life, inanimate. So this might be difficult, but we're going to try to bridge 2,000 years and language, and we're going to take the original meaning and and try to understand it. It's very complicated, but this word means dead. Standard, corpse, dead. Hence our zombie guy, okay? Blech. And Paul is saying this was the state of the whole world, including who? Including us, right? So everybody. So the first thing we need to know is it's dead. But, gosh, he says we were dead, and that was the state that we used to live in. Did you catch that? You used to live in your sins when you were dead in sin. Let's talk about this word live, okay? It's the word peripateo. Why is this interesting? Well, it can also be translated walked. Again, back to the Blue Letter Bible, outline of biblical usage. It means to walk, to make one's way, to progress, to make due use of opportunities, or to live. And we still use the word walk this way, don't we? Don't we? When we say, watch your walk, how's your walk, what walk of life are you in? We don't mean your gait. We're not talking about how your heels and toes touch the ground. We mean how are you living. But right here, we have an ancient copyright violation because Paul is talking about the walking dead. He's talking about the living dead. Paul coined this term, in my humble opinion. And uh, it's astonishing that it's so right on. I actually think this is why zombie films and zombie movies resonate with people on such a deep level because spiritually, I think that's an accurate way to look at the world. Hostile, dead people, living in death. What does that look like? Got me. But the best image I can think of is that zombie guy over there on the right. So I won't belabor this point, but hostile and dead. Here are two verses. Oh, let me go back. Just to prove I'm not overstating the case, because you might think, Anthony, that's a pretty grim outlook on human nature. I mean, aren't humans basically good? I mean, given ideal situations, wouldn't people always be nice all the time? No, absolutely not. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite in the Old and the New Testament. And let's look at that. Genesis 6-5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently 
and totally evil. Genesis 6-5. And now we pick up that verse, that ancient idea, and we move it forward a couple thousand years, and we put it in the mouth of Jesus in Mark 7. And in Mark 7, 21-23, Jesus Christ says this. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these vile things come from within, and they are what defile you. The first thing we need to know about this world we've been thrown into, the first thing we need to know about the setting of the story is that it's hostile and it's dead. Now, this doesn't sound very encouraging, and that's because it's not. I'm sorry. It's hostile, dead things are not very encouraging. In fact, this message doesn't really get super encouraging until the very end. Just spoiler alert. I'm sorry. <laughs> but let's talk about the image of God in every human being. Do you guys know we're all created in God's image? Even the nasty fallen people? So here's the interesting conundrum we're in, is that humans can still bear the image of God. In fact, we all do. And we're capable of doing good things. But we always show our true colors as fallen and corrupt. Well, what might that look like if perhaps I had, you know, a gif from a 1990s movie? It would look like the little mean, nasty, but cute aliens from Galaxy Quest. Who knows what I'm talking about? Anybody? All right, this is creepy as I'll get out. But think about this as people on the inside. You guys remember these? They're like, oh, they're so cute. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was in there the whole time. This reminds me of human nature. Really nice and really cute most of the time until they eat you. Hostile and dead. First thing we need to know about the setting of the story. Let's move on. That's a creepy slide. Let's just click past. All right, second thing. This is enemy-occupied territory. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.2. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He calls him the commander. Come on, Paul. Don't give him so much credit. I mean, he's, he's overcome, right? I mean, you can't call him the commander. Well, Jesus referred to the devil this way. In John 14, 30, he said, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. And he says it again in John 16, 11, Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. The Bible never shies away from calling the devil what he is. He's a commander. He's a ruler. He's even called a little G God in some places. And this creates another interesting element to this context, the setting, the story we've been thrown into. Not only is it hostile and dead, but it's enemy-occupied territory. Now, Streets of Rage 2 has this intro slide. It seems the evil Mr. X has survived the final battle and brought his syndicate back to the city. Oh no, of course, more punching, more kicking, more Saturday afternoons spent in total delight with my friends. But just in case you're missing my analogy here, he would represent the devil, that would represent the world, and the devil really is portrayed this way in scripture. He's a big nasty bad guy who has power. He has authority. But let me ask you this. Does he have ultimate power? Is it authority that he is going to keep, or is it authority he stole while he could steal it? It's authority he stole while he could steal it. And you know what? The end is on the way, isn't it? He's not nearly as tough as he would want people to believe. 
But for now, he does have sway. He does have power. He does have authority. And he shouldn't be taken lightly. The world of hostile dead people is under his control. And that means that when we think about what the Christian life should look like, we need to stop thinking it's going to look like this all the time. <laughs> I love this. I forget where I even found it. Guy running on a beach, you know, hopping and skipping, like fresh cut grass and the sun is bright. You know, let me tell you, God loves it when life is like this. You know, God says a lot in the Bible about wanting to bless us, about giving us peace, about giving us joy, about how we overcome, and those are true. God's not messing with you. God doesn't play games. We don't have a sarcastic God. He wants that for you. But the mission, the outward journey, is into a hostile and dead world that's under enemy control. Think about what Jesus' life looked like, living that mission out. So we shouldn't be surprised when it feels more like this. That's not really meant to be a joke, per se. It's, I, I don't know what movie that's from, but it's D-Day. Is it Saving Private Ryan? Thank you. That's a serious, heavy movie. Now, don't hear me saying that God enjoys it when he looks down from his throne in heaven and your life feels like this. When life feels terrible, when life is hard, when you're barely making it, when you're seeing people suffering all around you. God isn't in heaven thinking, oh, now they're proving they love me because they're suffering. Uh, get somebody on the line. Let's pour more suffering on there and see how much they love me. Let's test their dedication. Just delete that. That's sick. That's not the God we serve. Go back and listen to the Upward Journey messages. All I'm saying is, while God may love this and want this for us, and he does, and he fills us with his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us peace and joy in all kinds of interesting situations, we can say this is bad. We can say this is rotten, this is evil, this hurts, I don't like it, it's unjust, I don't want this to continue. God, I pray you end this suffering, I pray you end these injustices, I don't ever want to see that or that ever again. We can say it's bad, evil, wrong, painful, but you know what we can't say is, boy, that's strange. Boy, that's odd. How weird that life would feel this way, that I would feel that. Hostile and dead enemy-controlled territory. God's a realist. Kathy said, in this world you will have trouble, and that's one of the promises we don't like to claim, but it's in there. And Jesus said, but I've overcome the world. So let's just head, tackle this head-on. Anthony, what about the victorious Christian life? I don't like all this suffering stuff. You know, I don't want that. Can I achieve a level of maturity or a level of faith or a level of love or be so full of the Holy Spirit that I'm like Neo in the Matrix, you know? And like I just stop the bullets and I bend reality around me and nothing bad can ever touch me and I'm just in this sphere of blessing and abundance that I can infect other people with, you know? And it's all roses right here because God is so good and powerful. Man, I wish. I wish. But let me tell you a little bit about victory, okay? Jesus said he's overcome the world and he has. He's not lying. But who wants to be victorious? You can all raise your hands. It's safe. I'm raising my hand too. I promise. I'm not trying to mess with you. But here is a picture of victory, okay? Maybe the stereotypical picture of victory. And who knows what this is a picture of? Iwo Jima. That's the flag raising on, I believe, Mount Suribachi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Victory. But victory at last. What just happened? You know, they've been bombing this island for months. And on February 19th, they finally invaded. The battle lost, it lasted five days, 20,000 injured, almost 7,000 dead. And on the 23rd of February, they raised the flag. Wow. Victory entails struggle. Maybe not horrific war. 
I'm not saying that none of you get to say you're victorious unless you suffer terribly. Again, please don't hear me saying that. That's not the God we serve. That's not the plan. All I'm saying is you get victory over something. You get victory from something. You win when you beat an opponent. Victory entails struggle. And if you want to be victorious, you need to know that you will have plenty of opportunities in a hostile dead world that is enemy territory. And as a side note, didn't Jesus overcome the world? Didn't he win the victory? February 23rd, 1944, they raised the flag. That island is not declared secure until March 16th. Just because you have victory doesn't mean struggle necessarily stops either. We just need to remember that. Anthony, please move on. This is, this is very serious. I know. All right. All right, here we go. All right, next slide. Things don't get any better yet, all right? Hostile and dead, enemy-occupied territory, and guess what? The enemy's organized. There's an enemy leader who is at work. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Ephesians 2, 2b. At work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Okay, thanks, Paul, for telling me there's an enemy leader, the devil who's at work. But what exactly is he doing? We've just talked about what's in the heart of man, right? All kinds of evil, nasty junk. And this is where the bad stuff that you do happens, happens to come from. So I don't think that tempting people to do what is already in their heart is a full-time job for the Prince of Darkness. Perhaps more of a hobby. You know what I think he does most of the time is deceive. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, Paul's trying to explain to the poor Corinthians why people don't get them. <laughs> this is why people aren't necessarily jumping to believe our message. If the good news we preached is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Why is that? Satan, who is the god of this world, little g, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. Paul doubles down in 2 Thessalonians. He's talking about the man of lawlessness, who at this point in my theology I actually think is probably a real guy who's going to come and do some things to instigate, you know, the end of the world. He's going to start the countdown clock, if you will. I could be wrong, but that's what I think. And Paul is saying, this is how you'll recognize this guy. He says, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. You see how he says that's the work of the devil? Fooling and deceiving people who are on the way to deception, destruction, excuse me, because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. The world is hostile and dead, and it's enemy-controlled territory, and the leader of the enemy-controlled territory is deceiving those people and making sure they stay hostile and dead. Wow. So we shouldn't be surprised if we don't always get a warm response when we tell people about Jesus. Am I the only one who's been at work and you're having a great conversation with somebody and there's this wonderful feeling of camaraderie and then you say something about church or God or Jesus or a testimony and it's like it becomes winter in your office, right? Everything changes and suddenly the look on their face is like, dear God, I don't even believe in God, but God, if you're real, please make this person stop talking about you, you know? <laughs> It's like, it's, talk about anything else. Talk about TV. Talk about sports. Stop talking about Jesus. There is animosity in some people. You can see they would kick you in the shins if they could get away with it and keep their job. Why? 
Because you're talking about Jesus. You're talking about the Lord. You're talking about the real power and authority. The one that this world's little G God wants to keep people from believing from. You have walked right into the storm front. So it's remarkable that anybody gets saved. You know, I heard Pastor Mitko's testimony again last night. And he was just, the pump was primed, man. He was looking all over to find something that was true. And he read all these spiritual books, but he couldn't find a Bible. And one day he happens to be at an old lady's house doing some work, and she has an old Bible on the counter. And he was thunderstruck. He said from Genesis 1-1, he realized he'd found the truth. And he just ate that Bible, man. He read it to bits. If you can read something to bits, no doubt. Perhaps in Bulgaria, you can. And he did. And then he got saved. He was desperate. It's amazing. You read Acts. We just did a series on it. Paul usually had one of two reactions from people that he talked to. They either wanted to organize a mob and kill him, or they wanted to change their entire lives and reshape it around the message he was preaching. What accounts for this drastic difference? Because sometimes you will get a good response. And more than a good response, you will run into people that are desperate for rescue desperate for rescue in this hostile dead world, enemy-controlled territory, with the enemy still deceiving, sometimes you're going to run into people that aren't deceived. And C.S. Lewis captures this brilliantly in his book, The Silver Chair. Let me see the nerds in the house. Amen. Raise them high. Hallelujah. Whole row. That's right. Excellent. So good. Love C.S. Lewis. And I love The Silver Chair. Here's the plot of the book, The Silver Chair, in 10 seconds or less. The prince of Narnia has been captured and taken underground by the evil devil-like queen, and he has been enchanted, and he thinks he belongs there. So four heroes have to go to the underground hellish lair of the queen to rescue the prince of Narnia. They succeed in finding him, but they don't want to free him because they think he's nuts. He's crazy. He's freaking out. He's ranting, and he's chained to this big silver chair, and he's screaming all kinds of crazy nonsense, and they're actually afraid to rescue him because he's acting so frantic. And then he explains why he's so upset, and he says this, it is at this hour that I am in my right mind. It is all the rest of the day that I'm enchanted. Now you can save me. When this hour is past, I shall be witless again. The toy and lapdog, nay, more likely the pawn and tool of the most devilish sorceress that ever planned the woe of men. You have this one chance when I'm seeing things clearly to rescue me. 23 out of 24 times, that person in your office is going to kick you in the shin. But the one time out of 24, the enchantment will be broken. This is why we go out into a hostile, dead world enemy-controlled territory, and we storm the beach, even though we know the enemy, the enemy leader is at work deceiving people. He can't deceive them all the time. He's powerful. The Bible doesn't lie about that. He's not all-powerful. He's got a lot of pull. He can't pull that much. We go out to find people who are having their one hour of the day. That's why we go out into this world. And this leads, yeah, amen. It's good. I'm, you know what? I had mine. It was interesting. It stunk. Now I think it's good, but we can talk about that later if you want to. This leads right into Jesus. Paul tells us in this blurb what Jesus' response is to a world full of corrupted, evil people under the willful deception of the devil. And this is what it says about Jesus. That God is so rich in mercy 
And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. No kidding, after the picture we just painted of a bunch of hostile, dead, nasty people who are deceived. And it's their fault they're deceived because they refuse to believe. Jesus jumps into that mess. Jesus knows what he's getting into. He understands the world's situation. He knows how dark and evil and nasty it is even more than we do. We can't see the half of it. He saw all of it, and he said, I'm going down there. There's nobody else to storm this beach with me. I guess I'll do it alone. He risked his life to bring dead people to life. He knew the risks, and he knew the fallen heart of man. He saw the little creepy alien things for what they really were. At one point in the Bible, he said, I don't need anybody to tell me what's in the heart of man. Thousands of years ago, not thousands, you know, a long time ago, I inspired the prophet Jeremiah to write the words, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Jesus knew all about it. He knew what he was jumping into. He knew the ultimate consequences, and he thought the ultimate reward was worth it. You know, the Bible says that for the glory set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And I have no doubt that part of the reward was his glorification. Man, I hope he got that in a vacation and so much more. But the Bible doesn't say, for Jesus so loved his future glorification that he gave his only son. It says, for God so loved us. God so loved the world. This world that we're talking about, this setting, this context, this hostile dead place, this enemy-occupied territory, yeah, man, that's what he loved. And he was willing to die for whoever would come with him. He spent 33 years crying out for people that were having their one hour a day. And the people that came, he accepted, regardless of who they were. And why did it work? You know, when a normal Jewish person touched a dead person, what happened? They were defiled and they had to leave. But what happened when Jesus touched a dead person? They had this nasty habit of coming back to life. Because Jesus overcomes death. And people are hostile. But you know, the Bible says that Jesus took that hostility on the cross, doesn't it? So that hostility is gone. Death can't win. And he came into the enemy-controlled territory and took it and humiliated him on his own turf when he rose from the dead. The Bible said that he led them captive through the streets and humiliated the enemy. Wow! He's coming for you, man. And he's coming for them. And he intends to win because he's really the authority of this place. And he has come to take it back. The church is meant to do that job. And as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus now sends us.